Welcome to the USS Social Enterprise with your host, Michael J. Curtis. This week, local welcome and its founder, Ben Pollard. Good morning, good afternoon, or indeed good evening, wherever and whenever it may be for you. I'm Michael J. Curtis, and welcome to the first episode of this new podcast, The USS Social Enterprise. Uh, you've caught me just wandering around my new back garden. We've just moved house, and as there always is with a house move, there's a lot to do. So I'm taking a break to do the intro to this new podcast. And if indeed you are listening, then congratulations, you're in on the ground floor. The ground floor of what, I hear you ask, which is impressive, considering that you're asking after I've recorded this, so well done. Your voice or your thoughts travel through both space and time. But back to your question, well, the USS Social Enterprise is a place where I sit and chat to men and women who run social businesses. That is to say, organisations whose goal is either with their profits or with the direct actions of their services to make the world a better place to benefit others. I think it's an interesting idea to start something up where the end game is to benefit others rather than just to make money. Plus, I happen to know a few people that could be called social entrepreneurs. So I thought, well, why not meet up with them and chat about what they're doing and how come they came to be doing what they're doing? if you see what I mean. And who knows, maybe it'll inspire you to either support their causes or perhaps to do something of your own in an area that you're passionate about. So we start this week with me having a chat with my old friend Ben Pollard. A few facts about Ben before we get going. Born in Liverpool, Ben and his family moved to Algeria when he was a young boy and after spending some of his formative years there he and his family moved back to the UK in the late 80s as it became a bit less safe for them to be there. Um, moving forward a bit Ben studied international relations at Nottingham University and following on from that he worked in production and editing and won an award actually for a short film he made uh, about a refugee friend of his who was trying to get his wife and children uh, to be able to join him in the UK. Uh, then he worked for various charitable organisations such as Tear Fund and Citizens UK before he co-founded Local Welcome, which is going to be the focus of uh, this episode. Anyway, this chat took place on Good Friday in Somerset House in London Town, uh, beside the River Thames. Um, I, actually, I enjoyed going to meet him there. It's nice I don't often get to go up to London uh, so it was lovely to see a few sites on my walk from the station to Somerset House however due to it being a bank holiday the bar we had planned to rendezvous in was closed which seemed a bit crazy to us um, so we wandered around Somerset House looking for another place to sit and chat and found actually a nice restauranty bit where we tried to sit down unfortunately we were told by the lady quite politely she was lovely about it but we were told that we couldn't record there because of permissions and things, I'm not quite sure why. But rather than argue, uh, we went round and, and looked for somewhere else 
to, to talk and after you know convincing ben that we couldn't just go into the bit labeled staff only because you know that's too scary we ended up sitting on two large red leather sofas at the bottom of an even larger stairwell and um, whilst this made for a lovely grand setting it was unfortunately slightly echoey so apologies if you hear a bit of that through the podcast also uh, we were somewhat of a thoroughfare at times for tours and uh, other things going on around the area so we had to pause now and again uh, once for a man who was either trying to fix or break a door with a coat hanger I'm assuming the the former as he had a large bunch of keys on him he looked quite janitorial as opposed to criminal but anyway in this chat we talk not only about local welcome but about Ben's time abroad how a promising career in recycling chip fat led to crop farming in Africa and what to do if an old lady dies in a nursing home. Enjoy! I'll see you at the end. You've got quite a soft voice, and that's you know a nice voice, obviously. Oh, very kind. Um, uh, Would you like me to um, make it any louder or different? <laughs> you just um, you just do what you, you do. You Ben, um, <laughs> you do you. I'll I'll worry about the rest. Um, but yeah, so it was like what ten years ago we last saw each other, roughly. Was it really ten years ten ago? Ten whole years. Amazing. See, when I uh, think back, so the last thing I remember you doing was something to do with uh, biofuel, diesel, like from wow. chip shops and things. Indeed. What, Indeed. what happened with that? There's a company that uh, make biodiesel kits. My brother had recently helped a large oil company write their 25-year strategy <laughs> and... Um, Bio-diesel was all the rage, um, and uh, I thought it might be fun to try and make some, um, and got as far as getting some big contracts from a, a pub group in particular, and got this big warehouse space, and got this company to give me the free kit, and then was talking to the city council about using biodiesel to power their bin lorries um, and then I went to Zimbabwe and um, the other thing that had been that I'd sort of become aware of from my brother's work was this plant called Jotropha. Right, Jotropha? Yeah, it, it produces, it's bizarre I can still remember this stuff from a long time ago but I think it, it produces a 38% oil yield um, from marginal land and is not eaten by cows um, or other animals. <laughs> so theoretically, uh, it could be planted in places that are vulnerable to desertification okay. um, and uh, create a kind of additional income for farmers particularly in sort of subsistence contexts, 
um, basically hedges that make money. And in somewhere like Zimbabwe, where they, I, I think they still haven't found any oil yet. And if you don't have oil, then uh, you're very kind of reliant on and vulnerable to global markets because you have to import it all. So having a, a way of um, making your own is good, <laughs> in very simple terms. Yeah. Um, so I sold the van and, and stopped trying to make it with chip fat and instead did a partnership with the amazing um, Cunningham family uh, in Matabili land. Anyway, we planted about, I think, 250 hectares, which is kind of the size of the old city of London, of these trees with subsistence farmers who at that point were mostly uh, raising, I guess is the right word, raising ostriches from chicks to, to young adults. And it was helping them kind of, I guess, raising them out of absolute poverty levels and kind of giving them actual money cash to buy school uniforms and scotch carts and other sorts of things. Um, the, the punchline end of this story is that all we needed, it's 2007, all we needed, Mike, was <laughs> the oil price to stay above $200 a barrel, and at one point it was 240 Right. All we also needed was some property investors just to stay a little bit liquid. Right, 2007. It was, I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? I literally, We nothing. just needed one other thing, and that was that the 2008 election in Zimbabwe just needed to kind of be at least just moving in the right direction, a kind of, you know, a, a, a peaceful transition to um, MDC or to the rule of law would, would be enough, but, you know, just... Did any of those things happen? <laughs> I, do you know what, 2008 is a bit hazy for me. Yeah. I seem to remember something about a global financial crisis. You know you're right. Yeah. It didn't go that well, particularly for people who owned land and buildings. So they were out. And that and was it, a key part of your whole It didn't. It didn't project. go that well for the oil price either. But thankfully... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the 2008 election in Zimbabwe won't be going in the history books for its transparency. The time that or... democracy won out. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so that was an interesting moment of history to, to be, you know. Oh, wow. So you're really part of. You really got <laughs> done over by the planet. That's well, the, the whole of I don't know. I'm sure society. Um, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it, said Churchill. <laughs> um, yeah, it was an amazing adventure and I got to spend time in Zimbabwe and learn a lot and um, then I went and got a probably my first proper job uh, at Tear Fund. But is, is that where working in that kind of sector was first kind of brought to light for you or was it? Well I had pre a couple of years previously I had um, I'd done a, an, an MA, a Masters at Nottingham in international relations. Right, I saw this. Um, this sounds like a James Bond thing, like, <laughs> like a kind of euphemism. I've got a master's uh, in international relations. Well, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, um, oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, I wish it's it not was. like okay, yeah. week one. Week, week <laughs> Here one. is one international to have relations es- with. Espionage. <laughs> no, but it was amazing. So, um, uh, so then at uni, I met a guy called Hojat, and he was uh, from Iran. He was he'd been given his refugee status, and as still often happens, sadly, um, you have. 28 de- days to leave your home office accommodation and if you don't have a national insurance number and all your papers ready then you can quickly find yourself destitute and homeless and in trouble you know amazing that you've been given your status but new problems emerge and they were emerging quite quickly for him so he came to stay and ended up coming and living in Glentworth Road in Radford with me and some student friends um, for I think a year or so um, and again that seemed relatively normal to me but uh, looking back apparently it's not totally normal um, and we made a film together um, because it took seven years for him to be allowed to bring his wife and two daughters from Iran really join seven him. years yeah so it was just kind of excruciating for him and, and kind of being a small part of his life and journey and watching him, you know, just wait and try and kind of interact with his little girls by telephone and mm-hmm. in letters. And this is before Skype was a thing. Um, there was no WhatsApp, so it was hard. So this film, uh, is that was that about the whole the process of him getting his family over, or was it...? Yeah, yeah, it was, it, you know, it was just... A short little film. It was probably very arty, or it was, you know, it was it was a kind of a reflection on, right. um, you know, yeah. It just tried to evoke a little bit of the sense of waiting and oh. frustration. Um, yeah. Is that anywhere that people could see? Do you know what? I'm not sure. I've got. I've still got it. It was in. It was made on 16 mil, so proper old-fashioned oh, wow, like, cinema film. You're like Christopher Nolan. And uh, <laughs> yes, in every way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So I think there might be a video version, but if there is a video, it'll be on VHS or something. So there are. <laughs> I don't think there are bits and bytes of this oh. film, um, but. Yeah, I was really proud of it. And it, it won a little award. It won the Carlton Young Filmmaker something when before ITN was Carlton. Oh, um, yeah. Well, the segue was that I made a film with a refugee and that told me resoundingly that I knew nothing about refugees or politics or the world. <laughs> um, and I also couldn't really read because I'm very dyslexic. So I decided that uh, because I couldn't read and I'd gone to art school, I should probably try and learn to read and do a master's. <laughs> um, I'll give you one other quick little story of that summer. Yeah. So I managed to blag my way onto this MA in kind of reading and politics and grown-up things um, because I had managed, I'd got a first, a first-class honours degree from an art school, <laughs> which I worked very hard for and I was really proud of. And, I, you know, I think I made some nice little films. But it's not the same as a first-class degree in reading. (laughs) Um, But they let me on, hilariously. So I had to spend a summer, like, trying to brush up my reading and and 
you know, read some stuff about politics. And I got a job in a, um, a hospice um, where I had two jobs. One was to go and collect the lovely older people when they wanted a haircut. And I had a bleeper, and it would bleep a kind of code, like, I don't know, 472. Okay. 472 was a haircut. Great, go and find Mabel. Oh, wow, it's like a, a like a police yeah. scanner, like we've got a code Again, it's very James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Is, International relations. Is Mabel needs a blue rinse. <laughs> we've got a code 847. Yeah, we have a code 427. <laughs> um, so 47 is Mabel needs a blue rinse. Great, go and help Mabel out of bed and do your manual handling and try not to break Mabel and all as well. Um, I had one other main responsibility. Um, let's call it a, a 927. Oh. Yeah. Now, I can tell by your face that a 927 is, is not a great code to get. Yeah. What's a 927? Well, Mabel's last moments, she looked good. The 97 was, Mabel's no longer with us. Oh no, it's a... So I had to go and find Mabel and wrap her in her sheets and take her down to the fridge downstairs. A 927 is, put them in the fridge. Mabel died. Yeah. Um, So it was a weird, weird month or so, or however long it was, this summer job, but kind of precious and beautiful. And I spent a lot of time sitting in this little cupboard that I had, or in one of the kind of communal areas that had an amazing fish tank, I remember. And I managed to read Small is Beautiful by um, a chap called Schumacher, no relation of Michael, (laughs) Um, about technology and politics and sustainability. Um, And it was really inspiring. All right. And um, that was my summer of learning to read and learning about the world. Um, and then I did the masters and right. um, did more reading and learning. Um, yeah. But you were asking also about Zimbabwe and whether that was the first time I'd, I'd sort of thought about what you might call social enterprise. Yeah. So it says on your, because I did a bit of internet stalking of Uh you beforehand which as we discussed before recording showed me that you'd gone to the opera um (laughs) before christmas i did go i took my mum to the opera you took your mum to the opera i did oh i can't even remember what it was and in case anyone else finds it my cousin was in it that's why i went what's your your cousin's name she's called fiona thornhill fiona thornhill and she she's broken a world record recently really for number of 360 rotations for three women in a seer wheel. <laughs> what's, what's a seer wheel? A seer wheel is like a, like a, like a hula hoop, the sort that a, you know, a child would hula in. Okay. But made of steel. Right. And so like a child would die in. Yeah. yeah. And, and bigger. Okay. So you know that, Michelangelo. Oh, picture what? So of they've got the like their, their hands yeah. on the top and exactly. their feet on the bottom. So exactly that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and they do crazy spinny things in it, and it's amazing. Oh, I think I've seen those kind yeah, of yeah, in yeah. Cirque du Soleil. It's type exactly things. that kind of thing. So yeah. she went. She literally went to circus school. 
Really? Um, and, um, yeah. And there were three of them? There were three of them. In, at, you can see one. there's a photo on, I was sent by in, yeah, excited aunts. <laughs> I, was, I was sent a link. Their photograph is in the Daily Telegraph, like, a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. I'll well, try and send the link. There you go. Yeah, if, <laughs> if possible, I'll put a link in the description Amazing. to the podcast. So yeah, anyway, she was in the, the opera. I can't even remember what it was. It was quite long, and I think I fell asleep. <laughs> but my mum loved it. Oh, brilliant. It was at this point we had to pause recording as a tour of the house came through the area we were sat in. Once we'd learned that there were different classes of banister nearby, I asked Ben about other trips he'd been on that had fueled his passion for working with displaced people, starting with his trip to Bangladesh. Anyway, yeah, I went to Bangladesh um, because at the time there were some refugee camps in Dhaka and a couple outside where people who had come from Bihar, which is in northern India, during the War of Independence, so as we know, India gets partitioned, turns into India and Pakistan, but at the start it's East Pakistan and West Pakistan then the East Pakistan lot are mostly of Bengali language and heritage. And after a while decide, do you know what? Mm, yeah, we're all Muslim in that, but mm, I think maybe we want to do our own thing. And that got a bit fighty. <laughs> and then India got involved and went, oh, hang on. Uh, yeah, my apologies to any historians or right yeah this is a this is an Usborne uh, my first history book for India and Pakistan yeah this is this is okay this is not a history this is podcast no all all names and truths have been changed to protect history Um, (laughs) um, but um, so there was a war of independence and India intervened but at the same time a load of people from northern India who were Muslim had left Bihar because being a Muslim in India at that part of history wasn't always easy. So they'd gone to East Pakistan thinking, hooray, we've made it. Now, the problem is they spoke Urdu. Now imagine it's the Blitz and you've arrived in London from, I don't know, the Scilly Isles or Guernsey or one of, one of those islands that, um, but imagine you're delighted to be in London and safe from the baddies. Right. But you happen to have grown up speaking German. <laughs> sure. Sure. And you're like, no, no, it's fine. I'm from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. Yeah. It's okay. And the UN that was sort of around as well went, oh, oh, yeah, guys. Great, well done, welcome. Do you want to just wait there? <laughs> just, yeah, no, cool, great, well done. Yeah, it's going to be fine. Just, you just wait over there for a minute. And they did. And then it was nearly 30 years later. Still there. Really? Yeah. Gosh. Um, so these weird little pockets within um, Bangladesh where literally the third generation of... Um, people who had come from Bihar mm. 
wanting to go to Pakistan and had, for complicated reasons, decided rather than to just assimilate and become Bangladeshi, wanted to hold on to their Urdu-speaking heritage and not become Bangladeshi citizens. And Bangladesh was not necessarily making it easy for them, but it meant that literally thousands of people living in a very small space on top of each other with no access to drinking water, uh, sanitation, education, or citizenship. And I met a guy called Hassan who had managed to start training as a lawyer, having been born in that camp, and was had founded the Young Urdu-speaking Bangladeshi Society, and was just an amazing human. And we hung out, and I wrote some things about their community. And remember talking, if you spoke to a young woman particularly and said, this looks a bit tricky, what do you want? She was likely to say, I want to go to Pakistan. Right. And I said, oh, what, do you, tell me about that. Right. And if you ask a bit more, she probably wasn't even that sure where that is. Okay, it was just a thing drilled but in. The mostly the older men mm. who were running the camps uh, just made this kind of mythology. They'd mythologized history to the extent that which vulnerable people mm. were vocalizing and even choosing a future for themselves that from the outside didn't particularly look like it was in their own best interests. Okay. Now, of course, that could never happen today. No. <laughs> that <laughs> in, would be crazy. In Europe or North America. Mm. Um, so that was interesting. read an amazing book called What is the What, um, okay. which I highly recommend, about the, the little group of little boys who ran away from Janjaweed militia, I think, um, ran away from violence in Sudan and ended up in refugee camps in Ethiopia and then were resettled to America. And there's an amazing story of them Firstly, just surviving against ridiculous odds and then working out how to live in a refugee camp and then working out how to live in Minnesota or wherever it was. <laughs> Great book. What is the what? What is the what? I'll put a link by in the description. Mr. Edgar's, I think, Dan, possibly. Dave Edgar's, that's it. Ooh. Not a Dr. Seuss book because it kind of sounds what is the what? Who is no, the who? it's not. It does sound a bit like Probably that. Probably not quite as well written as Dr. Seuss, but... <laughs> But yeah. nonetheless. Cool. So where did you get the idea from for, for Local Welcome? Good question. Um, and in answering that, what is Local Welcome? I've just had a great meeting with uh, another friend called Michael who is helping me try to articulate what wel Local Welcome is because um, I have lots of ideas and trying to cut through them to the core of the thing right. uh, is a skill I'm trying to develop 
against my better nature. <laughs> it's really um, hard. Going on your website, it looks, just from an outsider's point of view, like it's uh, a organizational platform, for, and I could be completely wrong with this, um, but an organizational platform for people to say, hey, I'm happy to you know, host a meal that involves people from my local community and, and newly in the area refugees. But, I, uh, but then there's also a tech element to it. There are, there is. Which so, I've yet to put my finger on. So um, it'd be great to hear what well, you think. Well, in so ways, probably so have I. But <laughs> um, it's really helpful, actually, um, Mike, to have this opportunity to try and distill and talk about what local welcome is and what we're trying to do. I think at its core, it's about connection, bringing people who are different together um, through a shared activity that for us is based on understanding rituals and bringing people who are different together for enough time to build some trust. That all started because I guess the, the big adventure that I'd been on for a few years before that was learning about community organizing and this process that um, a particular kind of community organizing that began in Chicago in the 1930s with a Jewish criminologist called Saul Alinsky who observed that the back of yards meatpacking district wasn't working and the schools needed to get better and the housing needed to get better and lots of the Polish workers were also in the Catholic congregations, but the union bosses and the bishops weren't really talking. Right. But their people were the same people and they had the same problems. And the Democratic Party was not delivering on anyone's interests. It was the era of vote early, vote often. Uh, and the real person running the show, arguably, was Al Capone. And Alinsky saw how power pragmatically actually worked. And he wrote a book called Rules for Radicals, okay. which was a practical primer for how the powerless could understand and build power. Um, partly based on having read Machiavelli, he wrote a book called The Prince, which was a practical primer for the powerful to retain power. <laughs> right. And it was a very kind of intentional and agitational kind of jibe saying, you know what, power isn't bad. It's not necessarily even good, it just is. It's like gravity. Right. It's the ability to act. But when your shared self-interest as a community are good, when you have a vision of the common good that you cannot realise because you don't have the ability to act on it, that's a problem. And in his observation, you kind of only get the justice, you have the power, the ability to compel that actually powerful people don't do the right thing because it's the right thing or because it's a good idea. They do it when you negotiate with them. And uh, a guy called Bernard Crick, he's obviously an Englishman with a name like Bernard. He, <laughs> he wrote a book called In Defense of Politics and he defined politics as the negotiation of difference without violence. And I liked that. Mm. Because it feels like, what does it look like to build power together? Not over people, but with one another. 
through negotiating our differences without okay. violence. So how does this fit into uh, local welcome? Well, that's what organising is. And when you organise, it's really hard to organise individuals because mm-hmm. you're herding cats. <laughs> yeah. And I tried a bit of that, building a residence association in a big estate in Clapham Junction that was about to get demolished. Amazing, amazing. Beautiful people, proud of having been a part of that. But exhausting and hard work. And you can't build and lead an institution while also organising other leaders in a political direction. My friend James, who um, is a, a very smart tech developer. James Darling, is James this? James Darling. The co-founder? Yeah, so he's uh, the, on the, most the, technical the, co-founder. the technical co-founder. Yeah, what does that mean? So well, I see well, that's a good question. What that means is... Um, Technically, he I, co-founded yeah. it, but, but actually... Well, um, what it means is that I had been... I, I had I sure. brought lots of people together across the UK. Okay, so you'd already started doing and kind of um, before it was officially like local welcome, or was well, this... we'd called it. We'd started calling it local welcome, right? Okay, and we'd started bringing people together, mm-hmm. and I'd actually started to try and build some technology with an amazing guy called Alex Pounds, who's a developer who was in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, and I'd learnt enough about how to build technology to know that I knew nothing <laughs> and that it's hard. And um, that was about the moment where James joined and we started to look at these, at these kind of, these rituals, these ways of bringing people together. So the, the, the most exciting kind of innovation mm. um, of local welcome, these kind of shared activities um, uh, wouldn't have happened without him joining and helping. Um, so, yeah. so what's the uh, what is the the technological side of things? He's talking about building technology and and getting James on board and yeah. stuff. So, what what, what is that? <clears throat> so, the thing that we've created is a uh, a way that seven people can gather around a table and cook and eat a meal together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first person it leads the table, okay. and then the other six are three pairs who follow instructions together, okay. read out by the table leader. Right. So the tech is a way to give instructions to uh, someone who's leading a table okay. to try and make it as simple as possible for them to facilitate uh, a shared activity, particularly if three of the people have never met three of the other people sure. and are from very different worlds. Okay, so it's uh, creating some kind of unified guidance through the process. Yeah, so it's um, on its simplest level it's just some instructions that mm-hmm. you know you could probably do the same thing on a piece of paper inside the um, you know if you just sent someone a letter with the questions on. Right, I'm sure it's more technical than that. But I mean interestingly we tried that you know we started with you know, bits of A4 paper reading, you know, and people just reading the questions. Right. There are some really simple and then some much deeper things that you can do with technology. Sure. For example, if you've got a piece of paper, people skip around and they kind of go to question nine or step four. Mm-hmm. And 
when we were learning how to do these things, particularly if you're trying to make a recipe, it doesn't matter how simple it is, people don't always follow the steps. And right. I don't blame them because I wouldn't. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never made a thing by following the instructions. Sure. Unless maybe it's something from Ikea. So, then it's useful. And there are ways that if things are designed really well, mm. you, you're kind of drawn into following the rules. Sure. If you've got an idea of what this could be, take Ikea for an example, or Lego or whatever, you see this thing, oh, I want to see that happen. I want yeah. that thing produced. Yeah. You know you're, if you go and freestyle it, yeah. you're going to end up with something yeah. that doesn't look as yeah. good, that isn't yeah. the desired uh, kind of yeah. product. And with a load of junk yep. left over at the end. So, and, and I haven't used that analogy before, so I'm glad it was a good question you asked to kind of bring it out, and I will definitely use it again. But there's mm. a sense in which, why do I follow the IKEA instructions, sure. and yet almost any other thing in life, I'm not going to follow the rules. <laughs> but there's something about that that I trust the process and the outcome. Yeah. And some part of my brain goes, yeah, Ben, this isn't complicated, mm. but you're not being, no one's patronizing you. Right. Just, if you don't do this, it, you, you're not going to get your bed, and you're tired, and you yeah. want your bed. So, so just follow the rules and make the bed. Yeah. So I guess it's all about being sold on the outcome, isn't it? Like, I think it's yeah. partly about being sold on the outcome, mm. but more than that, there's a way that good design draws you in and reassures you mm. and almost sort of makes following the steps in the process just inevitable. Okay. So the other examples that I use when talking about technology are, I guess, things like Uber and Airbnb. Right. So our mothers, bless them, either told us or probably should have done not to get in a stranger's car and go to a stranger's house and sleep the night. <laughs> She was right. It's nuts. Don't do that. And she'd probably say the same thing while I put her in the Uber on the way to the Airbnb. What changed? And I think there's something there that we learn from this process of kind of service design and design thinking okay. and ways that particularly digital technology companies mm. have got really, really good at understanding our desires and motivations mm. and behaviors in enough depth that new solutions to old needs or problems are presented in ways that just feel easy or right or natural. So one thing that people asked a lot when we were trying to start doing this was training. Well, are you going to give your volunteers training before you expose them to these refugees sure because they might break the refugees <laughs> or the refugees might break them or like it's yeah. not going to go wrong ben the kitchen table burst into flames it could do yeah it might it probably won't now how was your uber training course did you pass and i get blank looks <laughs> but what about airbnb oh i remember my first day of my airbnb training it was really boring, but I knew it was really important because of safeguarding. <laughs> no! It didn't happen. I just went and stayed in the stranger's house. <laughs> it was quite fun, and it went well, and it was cheaper than a hotel, and I did it again. 
Yeah. Why? What's happening there? There are real risks that need managing mm. and mitigating. But we've tried to have a kind of design thinking approach to managing and mitigating those risks. And that partly led us to seven people around a table doing a thing together, partly so that there are lots of other things that they're not doing. Okay. And answering seven questions while they do it, so that there's lots of other weird stuff that they're not doing. Sure. You've got some structure, you've got some... There's structure. There's things in there. ritual. Mm. And we don't talk about ritual to people because they find it weird. But that's kind of what's happening. It's, it's the correct use of the word. It's just people take the word ritual and think about, you know, uh, sacrificing something on an altar now. Exactly. But it's actually... Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. How does this technology get to the, the host, the person? So there's two bits of technology that we're <coughs> using now and mm -hmm. a third bit that we're about to start okay. playing around with and making. And the first bit, we use a thing called Typeform, which is a bit like Google Forms. It's really, right. it's, a, it's a prettier way of putting questions on people's phones. Okay. That they click a button and either can answer it or click on the next question. Okay. Um, and we use that to give a table leader seven recipe steps like peel a potato, chop, grate a potato, break an egg. But for each of those seven steps, they also get a question that yeah. they read out. So the pairs answer a question like, what's your favorite food and can you cook it? How was your week? How's next week looking? Is there a skill that you'd like to be using again in a year? Do you want any help or encouragement with doing it? Questions designed that uh, someone seeking sanctuary or someone wanting to give some time in line with their values and find a bit of purpose and experience community, those questions make sense to most humans. Yes, yeah, anyone can answer yeah. to some extent. And, and what we found is that when you get those questions right, they also just elicit an appropriate level of vulnerability. Right. So that you've kind of leaned into the hierarchies that are usually prevalent throughout unconscious biases <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. um, and cool. the um, in developing those you know, so you've got the form yeah mm. the form does that the other bit is uh, basically a bot okay um, so you want to lead a table and you can send a text message and our bot will send one back saying hey what's your name and where did you come from oh. uh, and you tell it that and when do you want to do this thing? And who do you want to invite? And give us their names and their phone numbers. Mm. And then the bot sends messages to them and tells oh, them right. what it's about. So it just tells organizes the whole thing. So, the, so you're still organizing, yeah. but the bot is trying, the assistant okay. um, is, is trying to take some of the friction out. Just sure. trying to make it a little bit easier for you to right get a hotel room or step in a taxi or yeah. do whatever the equivalent thing that you wanted to do. Organize a little dinner party, get some people in a room. No, those are things that people can do, but that are real hassle sometimes. Mm. So we've just tried to start learning how to make it easier. Yeah. And this has gone a, a bit international as well, like. Yeah, I mean, we've, in, we intentionally started by testing. Yeah. So we've run meals in New York, in DC, in Toronto, in Berlin. Yeah. Um, 
this one of our kits are in Paris and uh, there's some nice people in Paris who want to do some of these and um, I'm trying to be a bit more disciplined and not do do more fun exciting things until there's more money um, <laughs> but, hold it back um, we've wanted from the start to learn um, partly just asking the question this this thing of cooking and eating a meal together works well in Dulwich does it also work in Dunkirk and Delaware um, good alliteration thanks I was pleased with that mm. delightful <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, we, the international thing was partly fun and partly some questions. And I think, you know, the, the broad answer was yes. <laughs> um, and I guess we're trying to create tools and experiences that are simple enough mm. that with a bit more support and funding, um, we can continue to test them and build kind of tools that can work in lots of places. So say someone is thinking about starting something, you know, just whatever it is, whatever they're, they're interested in. You know, do you have any, any tips, any things that are like, this is key, if you do this one thing, you know, this, <laughs> any wisdom? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think, this, this isn't necessarily true for everyone. Thankfully, we're all different. <laughs> um, so I think there's a thing of, I don't think there is, a, there is one answer or one yeah. size fits all. Um, I often come across people who don't love what they do. Sure. And who sort of glaze over and seem misty-eyed and talk about a future where they are kind of fulfilled and happy and I've never really experienced that because uh, I've <laughs> I've generally done what is fun and fulfilling <laughs> and it also comes with a lot of downside it's hard you know I, I you know, I've made some big sacrifices and some huge mistakes um, and learnt a lot along the way. So, um, what kind of sacrifices? Time. You know, I've um, I've learnt a lot about myself um, in recent years. Um, I. I was diagnosed with ADHD, which should have been a surprise to absolutely no one. It was a surprise to me. Um, and um, actually, particularly in the last kind of two years, mm. um, getting medicated and getting some really good sort of professional help, um, learning to pause and uh, slow down my kind of thinking and living and doing to a level that is much more sustainable has been amazing. And, you know, things like coaching, learning to ask questions. So I think one, th yeah, one thing that is very true is that, or that is 
been my experience and I probably learnt later than I would have liked to or wish I had or whatever is um, how to kind of build teams of people who want to be supportive um, and I think that even more recently I've been learning and getting better at is not needing to do everything and finding people who are much better than me at doing all the things and giving them permission and freedom to thrive and flourish right. at what they're good at um, uh, and then trying to be really disciplined and carve out time for the things that I love doing and I'm sometimes good at. Me again. Thank you so much for listening this far into the podcast. Or at the very least, skipping to this point to see if it's still going. Yeah, we're still here. I'm still wandering around in my garden. Um, I've put links in the description for the various books Ben mentioned in our conversation. I haven't read any of them myself, but he recommends them, which is good enough for me. Now, if you want a book recommendation from me, then the best I can do is recommend some Julia Donaldson, because I have young children and she's a children's author, uh, or some Agatha Christie, because I've been reading quite a lot of Poirot recently, which is excellent, which is really fun. I read Murder on the Orient Express uh, before seeing actually any of the David Suchet's or the new Kenneth Branagh one, and really enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed the book more than the film, but I think that's always the way. The film was very good, it was very entertaining, seeing you know, Olaf as a real boy. But yeah, the book was just a bit better. The The film felt rushed, which I guess is the, the nature of it, being, you know, an hour and a half versus however long it takes to read a book. Um, but that happened fairly recently as well with Gone Girl. Again, excellent book. Film, good, but, no, you know, not as good as the book. Uh, also, the only other time I've done it was a, a few years ago with... High Fidelity, the Nick Hornby novel. Again, brilliant book. Actually, also brilliant film. But you just you just get more detail in a book. However, it does take a lot longer to read. So, you know, pros and cons, swings and roundabouts, all those things. Um, but no, uh, there is a link, as I mentioned, in the description to each of the various books that uh, Ben recommended. Anyways... If you are indeed still listening to this podcast, um, well done. And if you're listening on or before the 18th of June 2018, then I want to tell you about Refugee Week, which um, Ben's organisation, Local Welcome, will be involved in and is happening all across the country. It's a nationwide thing and it's happening from the 18th to the 24th of June 2018. Um and there's events happening from, you know, as far north as Newcastle to as far south as Exeter and lots of places in between. I did start writing a list of all the cities, but there are way too many to mention. Um, but you can check them all out at www.refugeeweek.org.uk. Um, you can also check out Local Welcome's website at any time if you're listening to this after the 24th of June and Refugee Week has ended. Don't worry go along to www.localwelcome.org where you can find out more about them and sign up to host a meal or if you just wanted to simply attend a meal someone else is hosting in your area then you can text ATTEND to 07481 344 569 uh, but again all these details and more can be found on uh, their website which is 
www.localwelcome.org. So all it remains is for me to say thank you uh, for listening. Uh, Please do like this podcast if indeed you liked it. And subscribe if you want to hear more episodes from me. Uh, Truth be told, um, I got this one out in time for Refugee Week. And the plan was to have more episodes in the bank so I could release them fortnightly or something. But with the house move, my free time has just disappeared. Um, But I've got interviews in the diary for later on this year. So there will be more episodes appearing in 2018 at some point. I know it's not the best way to start having just one and then not being sure when the next one's coming. But ultimately we will make this a regular thing. I just wanted to make sure, as I said, that we got out in time for Refugee Week. Um, So yes, if you hit subscribe on whatever medium you subscribe to podcasts, uh, then you can be notified when... Uh, a new one and the beginning of hopefully a series of these uh, pops up and you'll get it fresh and hot straight out of the uh, podcast oven anyway that's enough from me I will see you later in the year so until next time uh, goodbye The rich audio <laughs> tapestry that yeah. is. Nice. Yeah, you only want to be Excellent. able to just about hear um, people in the background yeah. <laughs> over the clanking of the children's songs like this, from a Stephen King film. This podcast is brought to you by Timpsons, the locksmiths, <laughs> and by Mothercare.